Thanks for listening to this episode of Screen Facts with Jason Davis, your movie trivia and discussion podcast. Please don't forget to like the Facebook page, facebook.com slash screenfacts. Let us know if you have any questions or comments. You can also tweet me at Jason Davis Voice or email screenfacts at yahoo.com. Please subscribe for free in the iTunes store to automatically get new episodes every Wednesday. Joining me on the podcast this week is my good friend, a guy that, strangely, I have not had on the podcast in, I think, six months or so. Has it been that long? It's been pretty long, and I don't know why it took that long for me to have you back on, and I really apologize for that because you're one of my favorites to do this with. I don't think there's an apology necessary. I think that, uh, <laughs> well, I'm really busy, and I know yeah. you are too, so between that, the two of us, busy gets in the way. Yeah, that might have been it, but Les Sinclair, my uh, old compadre, from Z95 down in Charlottesville. Of course, he's still there and still on WINA as well. Mm-hmm. You can hear him on your radios down in Virginia. I'm so happy to have you on here. I asked you, what Will Smith movie would you want to talk about? I Am Legend. Great, great movie. And you know, when I think about it, this probably wouldn't have been my first choice for a Will Smith movie. Not that I don't love this movie. It's great. Yes. But I probably would have said Men in Black because it's just so good. I forgot how good this movie is. Yeah. You know, I hear you talking a lot with the, uh, your other podcast folks about, do you remember seeing this in the theater? Uh-huh. And and I can't remember seeing this movie in the theater. I'm sure that I did. But I remember it on DVD and uh, watching it at home. I think that's where I get my best watching experiences of movies, which is sad. But that's the truth these days anyway. You know, most of the time I do see movies for the first time at home, too. And most of the time I enjoy it more at home, too, for a lot of reasons. But I do have a distinct memory of seeing this movie in the theater when it first came out with a buddy of mine, Danny Tour. And it's funny because he's not a guy that I get to hang out with that often. But for whatever reason, we got together and we saw this movie. Originally released December 14th, 2007, directed by Francis Lawrence, stars Will Smith, pretty much the only guy in the movie for most of the time. Yeah. There's a couple of people that that appear in the movie as well in flashbacks and then um, later on in the movie. Oh, and I should say this before we even get into this. We will be talking some major spoilers in this podcast. So uh, if you have never seen this or if you haven't seen it in a while, you might want to watch it or rewatch it before listening to the podcast. So this is your warning. You've been warned. If you continue (laughs) listening at this point. That's on you. Turn back now. (laughs) That's right. So uh, there were some other actors that were considered for the lead role in this movie before Will Smith was cast last. Did you know that? I did know a few of them. Kurt Russell was once considered for this in the late 90s because they apparently have owned the script for this for a long, long time. And it's been remade a couple of times. But when he made The Soldier and it failed, they went, eh, write him off. You know, he was in those uh, Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. movies, too. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I've ever seen them, but I think that's sort of a post-apocalyptic kind of vibe to those movies. So it might maybe that would have been another reason why they didn't want to cast him as well. Who knows? I think, you know, once you start talking box office numbers and somebody has some um, fails, if you will, they kind of go, "Ooh, they're not hot anymore. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. But some of the other actors that were uh, considered over the years, because, again, like you said, There was an original version of this called The Omega Man in 1971 with Charlton Heston. But then they were trying to make I Am Legend for years and years after that with a lot of different people. Tom Cruise, Nicolas Cage, Michael Douglas. (laughs) Can't see Michael Douglas. Michael Douglas is a great actor, but yeah, I mean, you know, it would have to be when he was a lot younger probably for this to work. Mel Gibson. Yeah. And he's like pretty much box office poison these days. Because of his anti-Semitism. That'll do it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Daniel Day-Lewis, 
who I can't imagine because he's such a serious actor. He's supposed to be a method actor, too, yeah. and he really becomes who he is. His wife has said, you know, when he played Abe Lincoln, that, yeah. you know, she gets to sleep with a different guy every six months when he takes on roles like this because he becomes that person. <laughs> that might be a little creepy, uh, having sex with Honest Abe. <laughs> I don't know. know. We'll have to ask his wife. Yeah. (laughs) And then the other person I just read uh, also that was considered was Ted Levine, who, strangely enough, I talked about a couple of podcasts ago when we did the podcast for The Silence of the Lambs. He played Buffalo Bill in that movie. He's the balding red-haired guy that normally has a mustache. Is that correct? Uh, He might be. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, he's a character actor mostly, I think. But yeah, so Warner Brothers owned the rights to the book since the 70s. And like I mentioned, The Omega Man was the first attempt. And then there was another version in 1998 that was supposed to happen with Ridley Scott directing Arnold Schwarzenegger in the lead. I could see that as being good in, yeah. my, in my head. I could go, okay, I, I can wrap my brain around that. Yeah, and, and at that time, I think Schwarzenegger was still, you know, pretty hot. Pretty hot, yeah. Uh, Ridley Scott, uh, also no stranger to doing these kind of movies. So, you know, that probably would have been very good. That actually fell through because production went over budget. So they kind of had to scrap things. In 2002, Michael Bay was supposed to direct Will Smith in a version of this, but they ended up doing Bad Boys 2 instead. So, you know, it really took a while before uh, this came to be. When you say that, it really does take a while. It's amazing in Hollywood how long and drawn out the process is. I mean, from Michael Bay and Will Smith 2002 to the movie actually coming out in 2007, Mm -hmm. that's five years. That's an lifetime in Hollywood. That's like four marriages. (laughs) (laughs) In in Hollywood, absolutely. Right. You know, I think that uh, that works out pretty well, though, for the movie fan, because in those five years, the CGI development was probably a lot. I mean, this probably would have looked pretty cheesy had it been done sooner rather than later in terms of the special effects. Uh, And there's a lot of CGI in this movie. Although, watching the movie last night, when you see the animals in the beginning, when he's chasing the deer, and then the the lion comes and mauls the deer, and you see the the family of lions come out, it's clear that they're CGI. I mean, you can tell that they're not real lions being used. It's also interesting to me, speaking of the animals, that Uh, the dogs can get the uh, KV virus, but the deer apparently don't, and neither do the lions. Yes, I thought of that too. And the dogs are only uh, susceptible to it if they're bitten. It's not, uh, they're not, they don't get it airborne. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? It's, it's, yeah. it's a well thought out script. It's just interesting that they don't mention that it doesn't jump to other animals, just canines and people. Yep. The source material is probably very good. The original novel was written by Richard Matheson. This screenplay was written by Mark Protosevich and Akiva Goldsman. And they also gave credit for the original 1971 screenplay. Uh, John William Corrington and Joyce Hooper Corrington were involved with that. This particular I Am Legend, uh, was the film was greenlit without a script being held. So I'm assuming that when Michael Bay and Will Smith signed on, and even though it isn't a Michael Bay film, but in 2002, I'm assuming they went, okay, yeah, we're going to green light this movie. Yeah. I mean, Will Smith at that time was definitely uh, hotter at the box office as well. I mean, you could put him in almost anything and it would be a success at that time. So the estimated budget for the movie, $150 million, which uh, is a lot of money. (laughs) About $5 million of it spent on the Brooklyn Bridge. Six nights of of shooting just to make the Brooklyn Bridge scene, which is amazing. Yeah, Yeah, they had quite a a lot of people involved in that sequence as well. They had to get the approval of like 14 government agencies and... 250 people on the crew, 1,000 extras, 
160 National Guard troops and full combat gear. I mean, it was pretty serious. And that's just a flashback in the movie. Right. And for a city that doesn't sleep at night, yeah. that caused some uh, major havoc. In fact, Will Smith apologized <laughs> for the mess that it caused in New York while they were shooting there. Yeah, would they close like five city blocks or something like that? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty that's incredible. pretty crazy. And it's they really did an amazing job of making New York look like a ghost town. I mean, the way they have the weeds growing up on the street and all that kind of stuff. It's just amazing. And it's funny, in the opening sequence, I was thinking as I was watching it, you know, there's been a lot of great car chases in movies, but that one's right up there. I mean, he's, you know, not chasing a person, but he's chasing deer for food. And I'm thinking, God, slow down. I know there's no traffic and there's no other people, but you're going to hit like something soon if you don't slow down. All I could think was how much I would like to do that. Have all the streets closed and just be able to rip and roar however you <laughs> wanted, not have to worry. You know, if he wrecks the car, big deal. It's not my car. I'll go get another one. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. And there's still cars in the street that are abandoned, yeah. which is kind of interesting to me too. The domestic gross for the movie was pretty good. $256.3 million. Worldwide, it made $585.3 million. That's more than a half a billion, folks. That's a lot of money. Yeah, Will Smith is uh, is and was a box office draw. I, I guess he's sort of lost his luster a little bit these days, but he's still responsible for a heck of a lot of money going into the movie industry. Well, he's about to be in a new movie called Suicide Squad, which is coming out this summer, which is another big uh, superhero movie. So it's I don't think he's the star of the movie by any stretch, but, you know, maybe this will be the thing that kind of gets him on the, the fast track to box office gold again. I think, though, that he has taken risks with his career. I mean, especially with things like The Pursuit of Happiness mm-hmm. and uh, even I, I think he started with I Am Legend. My, my belief is that this was the one that really put him in a holy cow, this guy can actually act because he's acting all by himself, essentially. Yeah. Anytime you're um, an actor and you're carrying an entire movie by yourself, that speaks volumes of your talent, without a doubt. He's phenomenal in this, too. I mean, he's just great. It's one of those arguments that I have with, uh, you know, we we start discussions and and it's like Will Smith, Tom Hanks have both done movies. Tom Hanks did Castaway, Will Smith, this one, where the predominance of the movie is shot with just them. And mm-hmm. I think that when a movie like that does a huge box office, it's only by the grace of their good acting. Absolutely. I mean, the script helps too, obviously. It's a great story. You have to be engaged with the performance too to really buy into the story. And he definitely, he's great, without a doubt. Let's talk about the dog. And here comes a big spoiler, by the way. I am man enough to admit to you right here and now that I bawled my eyes out again watching the whole stuff with the dog. First of all, they used a couple of dogs, but one dog mainly was used. It was a dog named Abby that plays uh, Sam or Sammy or Samantha, depending on what part of the movie you're watching. The dog is amazing. Uh, It's a German Shepherd, and they're probably one of the, if not the smartest breed. And that's why they use them for police dogs. But uh, they had a trainer on set, obviously. I remember reading an article in Entertainment Weekly magazine when the film came out, and they said that the trainer worked one-on-one with Will Smith and the dog to get the dog to bond to him. So nobody on the set was allowed to interact with the dog in any way, shape, or form because they wanted the dog to really be bonded to Will Smith. So obviously, once they wrapped production, everybody wanted to pet the dog. It was a big thing. But Will Smith actually tried to adopt the dog after the movie was done. He, he loved the dog so much that he really wanted to take the dog home with him. But the trainer was like, no, sorry, I can't do that. Isn't that amazing that yeah. the trainer would say no? I mean, you'd think, ah, yeah, well, uh, or maybe the trainer invested enough money and thought that the dog was so good that wanted to keep it. I'm 
guessing that the the dog has been used for other movies too, possibly or TV or whatever. So you know that's a cash cow, cash dog, cash cash dog, yeah, <laughs> uh, diamond the, dog, yeah, for the trainer. So in the movie, the dog is like his only friend in the world. He's trying to stay sane by having mannequins all over the city that he talks to and acts like they're real people and all that kind of stuff, which is very similar to Wilson, the volleyball in Castaway. Exactly, yes. <laughs> but the dog is its his pal. It's his whole life. Well, I think anybody who owns a dog or is a dog lover can really see themselves. You could get through the zombie apocalypse if you had a dog. Because yes. I think we all need some sort of connection. And most of us need human connection. But I think a canine can provide a great bit of support for a lot of people. You can talk to it even if they don't talk back. Yeah, absolutely. And he does, you know, with the when he makes the plate of food, eat your vegetables. Come right. on, don't just push them around. Eat your vegetables and... And, and then he's giving the dog a bath. He's like, all right, you'll just have double the vegetables tomorrow, you know. And it's the dog is so well-trained. It's really amazing how, how they got the dog to do everything in the movie. And at one point, the dog chases a deer into an abandoned building where the dark seekers, as they call them, are hiding out. And, of course, he's panicked because if the dog gets bitten, that's all she wrote. Luckily, doesn't happen. But then there's a scene where we find out that the, the dark seekers in the movie actually can think. They actually have cognitive abilities. They are not just zombies. Exactly. There's a scene where they kind of set up a trap for Will Smith. You know, Will Smith gets caught up in a trap and he's hanging there by his leg. The lead dark seeker tries to get Will Smith and he releases zombie dogs or vampire dogs, whatever whatever these monsters are, right? I guess they're vampires more because they can't go out in the sun. Right. And the dog mixes it up and he gets he gets bitten. And I got to tell you, that whole sequence, I, I don't know if I'm ever going to watch that sequence again if I watch this movie again. I just, it was so hard to watch that. You could kill a million people in a movie and I'm fine with that for whatever reason. But when a dog gets hurt, I can't take it. Dog people are like that. I think that there's yeah. a certain um, sect of people who really just don't want animals to get hurt, even in an imaginary way. That again, though, circles back around to the testament of Will Smith's acting because they do not show him dealing with this dog. Right. They only show his face and yes. it's one close shot and it's probably what 30 seconds that feels like five minutes. Yeah. And and he goes through the range, the terrible range of emotion and it really does play out. It sucks everybody. I know I don't get choked up on those things, but I got choked up with that thing. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I'm telling you, I was bawling my eyes out and that was actually voted one of the saddest movie moments ever on an, in an online poll. You know, it's a combination of I just hate to see bad things happen to animals, especially dogs, because I love dogs. And, you know, and, and I guess I kind of empathize. I think, Jesus, if that was my dog, that would destroy me. Well, and a lot of people can even equate the dog to a child because it really was sort of his child in the movie, you know, somebody that he could relate to and tell to eat their vegetables and that sort of thing. And and boy, that, that was a tough scene, no question about it. And, and the interesting plot point about this is it was a dog that was given to him as a puppy right, um, by his daughter as they were leaving uh, and this was the Brooklyn Bridge shot, I think, right. uh, as they were leaving uh, to get to safety, which they eventually did not get to. Right. But the daughter was actually Willow Smith, Will Smith's real daughter. Yeah. So we talked about how cool the location shots are, but originally it wasn't supposed to be New York. It was originally supposed to be set in Los Angeles, but they thought that iconic building wise, it would be better set in New York. And uh, then there was a whole logistics thing with New York as well, because it must be a huge pain to 
get the approval yeah. <laughs> to, to shoot in New York. And so they ended up uh, moving it to New York. And I think it was a good choice for them. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, too. Uh, like you said, New York is definitely has more iconic buildings. And then, of course, there's a big sequence in Times Square. Everybody knows Times Square from New Year's Eve, right? It's just funny, you know, when you watch the movie, some of it's a little bit dated. You know, you see some of the Broadway shows that are listed on the uh, on the marquees and stuff. One of the things that's kind of cool that you can look for that's very clear is the Superman Batman logo on one of the billboards. And the fact that they really used that Superman Batman logo, I think, is fantastic. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, I guess maybe Warner Brothers way back when knew that they were going to do a Batman versus Superman movie or maybe it was in development that long. But yeah, you see very clearly the Batman versus Superman logo shown and this movie is supposed to take place in 2012 the flashback stuff is 2009 but 2012 is when uh, all the stuff is going on where he's by himself i am legend was also a dc comic which both batman and superman are from the dc comic universe there you go originally the the dark seekers the vampires in this movie were going to be actors in all kinds of makeup and prosthetics and stuff unfortunately when they shot some test footage with them they looked like they were a group of angry mimes yes (laughs) so that's why they made the decision to go to cgi characters and that actually worked out well for other reasons too there's a lot of scenes where they're doing things that would be humanly impossible to do climbing buildings and things like that there's a scene where he barrels through a group of them in his truck in his suv which obviously i'm sure they could create some sort of a stunt for that but it's a lot easier for him to just barrel through a group of CGI characters than real the, people. The CGI was uh, pretty good in this movie. It, it, it has advanced so much, though, yes. now. And I rewatched the alternate version, mm-hmm. which has the alternate ending. And there's a lot of CGI in there that is you kind of go, eh, it's really not believable, which makes me very happy that the theatrical version, they edited those CGI parts out, if you will. Yeah, it was less CGI in the theatrical version. Yes. The other thing that I thought was very interesting was the screams and, and kind of weird sounds of the creatures in the film. They were all done by the singer from Faith No More, Mike Patton. Do you remember that group? I do, yes. They had a, you know, a couple of years in the, probably the early 90s, I would say, where they were pretty popular. They had a couple of videos. The big one was Epic, where they had like the flopping fish. Do a YouTube search for uh, Faith No More Epic and you'll remember it when you see it. But it's kind of cool that like a human being made those noises. And they translated well, I think, to the film. They did a great job mixing. I don't know if they won an Academy Award for the mixing, but uh, it, it was pretty good. Yeah, I don't think this won any Oscars. It won a lot of awards from like uh, organizations that are less well known than the Oscars or Golden Globes, like, you know, science fiction kind of stuff and things like that. Again, we go back to the acting performance. I think anytime an actor carries an entire movie pretty much by himself, regardless of how good the source material is and special effects and all that other stuff. You got to be considered for some sort of award for that, I think. You know? Well, it should have its own category, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Best <laughs> actors that acted by themselves. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Speaking of which, Smith is ranked as one of the most bankable stars worldwide by Forbes. This was uh, from 2014. 17 of the 21 films in which he had leading roles had accumulated gross earnings worldwide over $100 million each. And as of 2014, his films have grossed over. Check out this number, $6.6 billion at the global box office. Yikes, that is a lot of money. And, you know, even some of his movies that didn't do as much box office are good. I didn't see Concussion. I do want to see that. 
Yes. He, he looks fantastic in that. But I remember Hancock was a movie that I think was a little bit of a disappointment uh, box office wise. I thought it was a pretty cool flick, though. I thought it was a good film as well. iRobot was really good. Yeah. And the bridge that the uh, android drew in iRobot is the same bridge that they had to do the shoots on here. So he's featured in two movies with I that feature the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah. Will Smith definitely has the action genre down, you know, anything with action and physicality. I was watching one of the uh, behind the scenes featurettes for this, and they talked about his training program for this. But he says when he gets ready to do any kind of movie that involves a lot of physicality, he likes to stay in shape anyway. So rather than having to get in shape, if he's a couple of weeks out from filming, he's pretty much there. He just has to work with the trainer for a little bit to get right where he needs to be. But his training regimen for this movie you know, they wanted to make him look like he was eating to survive, but not there was no abundance. So he's sort of skinny, but he's he's ripped. He's lean. Yeah, very lean. So they talked about how he would do a lot of cardio stuff and they would cut his carbs to kind of lean him down a little bit. But when they knew he was going to be having to do a lot of dialogue or have to memorize a lot of stuff, they would work him out really hard. But then they would make sure he ate a lot of carbs, because if you start cutting your carbs, it could actually affect your memory. That's right. Your brain function goes down. Your brain operates on glucose. Yeah. Which is interesting how, you know, the balance that and the guy that that he trained with for this also worked with him for Ali and some other stuff. So and he's a guy that's done a lot of training stars for movies. When he was in Ali, he was huge. I don't know how many uh, a couple of hundred pounds. I don't know what Ali weighed in at, but uh, he was softer, but um, uh, definitely more massive in this. He was still muscular, but. Mm much more ripped. It's got to be hard work. That's the thing. You know, a lot of people go, oh, actors, they earn a lot of money and they don't really have to do a lot, blah, blah, blah. Listen, if, if, if it were that easy, everybody would do it. And the fact that they have to get in the kind of shape they do, and even the physicality during the performance, you know, running over cars, and, and he does a lot of that in his movies too. Just getting in great shape. And again, going back to what we said before about how good he is on screen and, and carrying a movie by himself it's got to be hard to get in those moments, like with the dog and everything, when he's trying to reverse the virus and all that kind of stuff. There's some really, really intense moments where you go, man, that's got to be grueling to perform like that. Serious lying with conviction going on there, right? Yes, exactly. (laughs) The actress, Alice Braga, Anna, she's the first person that he comes across, what, in three years, I guess, in this movie. Right. She's first seen in the film rescuing him from his overturned cars. You were mentioning there's a lot of physicality, and even those cars and the like are on a gimbal. There's still a lot of being tussled around, and you've got to remember your lines and what to do. And and, uh, so she um, came along then. And interesting, she's been an actress for quite a little while. She started in a yogurt advertisement (laughs) when she was eight years old. Oh, that's cool. It's always good to hear about a child actress that grows up to become a successful adult actress as well. Okay, so let's talk about the two different endings. In the theatrical version of the movie, he finally figures out the the proper formula that's going to reverse the virus. And he takes the blood from the Dark Seeker. He gives it to Anna. Go to Vermont, where where there's supposedly a colony of human beings living. The the cure is in this blood. Take it there. And then he he has a grenade and he blows himself and all the, the monsters Zombie up. creatures yeah. away. He's legendary because he saves humankind by sacrificing his own life. That's the ending that test audiences chose, by the way. And I have to say, this is a perfect example where you shouldn't listen to a test audience. I like the alternate ending better. The alternate ending is 
where he actually survives this by giving the girl who they have taken the uh, the, the, monster, the female, the female monster. Uh, dark seeker, if you will, back to the other the male lead dark seeker who loves her because they have higher brain function. He discovers right. and he gives her back to him. And the zombies back away. Yes. One of the reasons I like the alternate ending more is because it makes sense with the rest of the movie. Because during the course of the movie, the Dark Seekers, specifically the leader, show that they have cognitive thought. They set a trap to capture Will Smith's character. So they clearly are able to think. And so it would make sense that in the, in the alternate ending, when he communicates to Will Smith by making the butterfly on the glass with the blood, and then Will Smith realizes that the dark seeker that he has captured to do the testing on has a tattoo of a butterfly on her back. And that's how he realizes, oh, he's talking to me. He's saying, hey, give her back to me and I'll let you live. So there's communication going on. And that makes sense with the rest of the movie, where the ending that they actually showed in theaters does not. The butterfly plays a huge part in this movie. Um, he yep. sees butterflies all along the way. It's one of the interesting things, the differences between the theatrical version and the alternate version. The butterfly on the neck was from Anna in the theatrical version. Right. And then, you know, his daughter looked at a butterfly the whole time. Yes. And, yeah. and actually in the theatrical version the glass when he when the dark seeker keeps running into the glass in the lab and crashing his head into it it forms a butterfly in the in the cracks of the glass as well so that's a um, a reoccurring thing in the movie i really think the alternate ending is better i enjoyed the alternate ending but i must tell you that after re-watching it here now for the third time mm -hmm. that i understand why it was not the theatrical version. I liked it better because it made me feel better but i also think that it wasn't believable that these beasts who were hungry and were eating humans would let him go just because he gave the girl back to them, especially since there was a horde of them. Yeah, but there was the the leader kind of controlled all the other ones. They acknowledge he's the alpha. I, I think it does make sense because they obviously had other ways of feeding themselves. Because at that point, there were no humans left, so they were eating somehow. They Probably were surviving. the deer and the lions and the zebras, oh my. Exactly. So, I mean, they didn't need to eat Will Smith to survive. So, uh, to me, it makes sense that they communicated to him, we've been chasing you this whole movie because you took one of us. You're the asshole, you know? <laughs> Sue asked an interesting question after we watched the alternate ending. So does that mean that there's no cure? And I said, well, no, because even though he says the cure is in her blood, he did that because he knew that he was a goner. So, you know, the only way he was going to be able to get the cure to civilization was to give blood from the, the creature that he cured. Um, but he knows the formula, the winning formula for, you know, curing the disease. So so when he in the alternate ending, when he goes with Anna and the kid to Vermont, all he has to do is just I mean, I guess he has notes Somehow. Well, he, he had everything recorded on six redundant drives. So even though the zombie creatures destroyed the lab, the thought would be that he probably had something backed up there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, especially a guy as a scientist, he's, you know, he's obviously going to have multiple copies of a winning formula for curing this kind of a disease. Yeah. Plus his own brain. He could uh, tweak that a little bit, too. <laughs> yeah. Kind of interesting that the apocalypse comes from the cure for cancer, though, isn't it? It was really interesting. And, and I wasn't sure... I didn't pay close enough attention to the doctor talking about that because I, I'm, I'm going, did they use the rabies virus or is this really just a genetic hop, if you will? Uh, and that was kind of interesting to me. I, I get a little geeked out over 
contagions. I think they were saying that the KV virus came from a mutation of rabies and something else. Yeah, that's what I thought as yeah. well. And and uh, the that's rabies why they're is so really violent. What, you know, yeah, the drives the aggression. Yeah, yeah. It's really a cool movie. It's not a feel good movie. It's a, an intense movie that you, if you're not in a good mood, don't watch the movie. Well, at <laughs> the end, at least at the end, uh, no matter which version you're watching, they've gone to this be- beautiful, picturesque place that's, uh, you know, it's fall and the leaves have all changed. Speaking of which, it's not in Vermont where they did the filming. That was in New Jersey where they did the filming because the leaves have already fallen off the tree by the time they uh, got there in Vermont. They'd fallen off the tree. See, there are nice places in New Jersey, Les. That's right. And apparently some deer there, too. Yeah, a lot of people. Yeah, we have deer all the time right around where we live. So, yeah, I mean, people make fun of New Jersey, but there are nice places in New Jersey, by God. (laughs) I thought it was kind of interesting in the theatrical ending when Anna and the kid arrive at the compound. The gates open up and it's very reminiscent of what we've seen on Walking Dead, right? Yes. Whether it be Alexandria or Woodbury, any of the, uh, the colonies that have come up on The Walking Dead. Uh, they might have even been uh, influenced by this movie a little bit. Yeah, I think the difference is, though, that in The Walking Dead, the people are the problem. And this, it seemed <laughs> like they were welcoming to people. That's true. Just not dark seekers. That's true. Great movie. Great choice, Les. Thanks for recommending this for uh, the one that we were going to talk about. Yeah, and if you haven't seen the alternate ending, I suggest that you watch it because it's really well worth the watch and um, certainly compare and contrast the two. Yeah. And by the way, on the, the Blu-ray, I, and I'm assuming there's a DVD, DVD version too that has it. It's not just an alternate ending. There's actually two full versions of the movie on the disc. I'm assuming the ending is the only thing that's different. Um, no, there's uh, there are actually a, a lot of things throughout the movie that are slightly different and oh. edited out. Yeah. Oh, that's very interesting. See, I didn't watch the whole movie. I just watched the ending. Uh, the I did that the version. first time, too. I, I just said, oh, well, I just want to see the alternate ending. But it turns out it's actually a whole different movie. It tells a, a slightly different story. Oh, okay. I'll have to check that out sometime then. Definitely. Well, Les, I really appreciate you taking the time to record with me. We got to figure out a way to make this happen with our schedules more often, for sure. Indeed. Thanks a lot. And thank you for listening. Please don't forget to like the Facebook page, facebook.com slash ScreenFacts, and let us know if you have any comments or questions. Remember, you can tweet me at Jason Davis Voice. You can also email ScreenFacts at Yahoo.com. Les, let me give you an opportunity uh, just to plug where you are during the day where well, people can I'm hear at, you. I'm at Z95 uh, on the radio. I'm at uh, WINA. That's News Radio WINA. I'm also at Les Sinclair. I also want to encourage people to go to the iTunes of this ScreenFacts with Jason Davis and and rate it and comment on it because it helps other people find it as well. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. And uh, you can listen to Les online as well, by the way. If you want to hear Les on the radio playing good music or talking about some uh, cool stuff locally in Charlottesville, what are the two websites, Les? Yeah, it's Z95.net for the music station. And uh, the news station, we cover all sorts of stuff. I talk about, I had a great conversation on Friday with the dietitian, and we talked uh, with an author about Vagrant Nation, if you're concerned about vagrants. So we talk about all sorts of, uh, more than just local stuff. And you can uh, check me out there at WINA.com between four and six in the afternoon, or it's on podcast. Very cool. And by the way, another way you can support Screen Facts is by buying merchandise. We have t-shirts and and hoodies available. If you go to the podcast page of jasondavisvoice.com, you can get information about that. Show theme music by audionautics.com. 
Thanks to WickedRadioNetwork.com and our announcer, Kim, from Kim'sVoice.com. Screen Facts with Jason Davis is a production of Jason Davis VoiceOver. Visit JasonDavisVoice.com if you need a voice for a commercial, narration, promo, internet video, e-learning or training program, and more. Click on the podcast page to get information about where you can download and listen to past episodes. Listen again next Wednesday for a new episode of Screen Facts with Jason Davis.